<clears throat> Hello and welcome to the Road to the Garden podcast. I'm Matt St. Jean here alongside Tommy Godin and we're joined by special guest Matt Schumacher, broadcaster for Fox Sports. How you doing? I am terrific. We've we've uh we've gotten well acquainted over the last 20 minutes talking <laughs> Big East basketball. So I'm I'm glad to be on the pod. I told you guys this before we came on the air but Love your your content on Twitter, and I follow along the podcast as well. So you guys do a great job. Right, we appreciate it. We got some some fun questions for you here. All right, let's go. I'm ready. <laughs> uh, the first one we, we got written down here. I know you've seen both Creighton and Xavier in person broadcasting um, in January. How do you think the two of those teams compare from seeing them in the flesh? Wow, that's a great question. Uh, the obvious thing that jumps out to me is the array of offensive weapons that both teams have. Like, you know, particularly for Creighton, you know, they had that rough patch where they weren't scoring at will on teams and they were allowing teams to score on them more than Coach Mack really wanted to see. But outside of that stretch, and particularly lately, I think we're seeing how good and how threatening this team is, the team that everyone expected them to be to win the Big East Conference. I mean, I think their game against one another uh, at the Cintas Center, I believe that was at the beginning of this month or beginning of last month. That was quintessential slugfest, haymaker after haymaker, Shireman hits a three, Boom hits a three, Kalkbrenner two-hand jam, Fremantle baby hook. I mean, they're just loaded. Those two teams um, are just terrific to watch when they're when they're clicking on all cylinders. Yeah, completely agree. Definitely two teams that are slotted in that top tier of teams in the Big East. Now, one of the teams that isn't quite in that top tier yet, but isn't quite on the bottom tier either. I personally call it Seton Hall Purgatory. Um, they're, they're right there in the middle. They're not like any other team in the big East this year. I know we were talking about it, um, a couple minutes ago, but I mean, you've seen the Seton hall team a couple times in January. Does this look like a tournament team to you? Yes. Hands down. I, they haven't been consistent this year, which has been their one bugaboo. We all know that, uh, Shaheen Holloway has talked about it a multitude of times. You know, you look at their loss to Siena at the beginning of the year, but then they also have all these quad one wins. Uh, I think they're three and five in quad one games with a few more to go in league play down the stretch here. I think they're a really good tournament team. They're a team that I wouldn't want to play because of how good and active they are defensively. That's a hard thing to replicate. Now the question is, can they do it consistently? And if the answer is yes, and they're also getting production from – Kadari Richmond and Tyree Samuel, and then Alamir Dawes hits a couple of threes. There's no reason that team can't win one or two games in March if they can get there. Yeah, that's a big question. And that loss to Siena, that's just – that's the tough thing for them right yeah. now because otherwise the resume looks pretty decent at this I point. Know. And they passed the eye test. It's a head-scratcher. I mean, and anytime I've, I've had them this year, which now I think I've had them four times, um, we always – remark about sort of the roller coaster that was their schedule from you know november to to january one they blew out some teams butler twice 
Uh, Butler's a team that beat Kansas State, which is also a head scratcher. Uh, <laughs> and then they also lost to Siena, which obviously hurts. But to me, now that we were just talking their top 55 as of taping this uh, this podcast in the net, Seton Hall is. And I think if they can get one more quad one win and then avoid the landmines, they're a tournament team. And then the Big East gets six teams in, which is great. Yeah, that'd be huge. That's that's. I think they had six. They had six teams last year. So doing yep. that two years in a row would be big. Uh, you mentioned Butler in there. I know you're a Butler guy. What's your take on the, that team this year? Uh, disappointing because I think their team is talented. I really do. Um, so many people that I've talked to. I live in Indianapolis still, and I live very close to campus. So I still I talk to lots of people. And the funny thing about Butler and Indianapolis is there's a lot of Butler fans that didn't go to Butler just because they're, you know, if they've been in Indy for the last 10 years, Butler's been that underdog story that everyone loves to root for. And so people pay attention. And going into the year, a lot of folks thought, okay, on paper, this is an NCAA tournament team. Like you look at some of the the transfers that Thad Mata assembled, his staff, the holdovers that they brought back. Um, and even in the non-conference, they didn't have a bad loss. And they beat Kansas State, which at the time – was like one of, if not the best, non-conference wins for a Big East team. Now, granted, it was at Hinkle, but yeah, it's it's shocking a little bit to see them uh, struggle as much as they have in conference play. But as a Butler alum, I have every confidence in the world that Thad Mata is going to have this program competing at a high level in the Big East in the in the near future. That's awesome, and I'm glad you brought up. Hinkle there, especially as a Butler guy. Um, as a Villanova fan myself, um, covering the team, I've, I've been personally victimized by Hinkle Fieldhouse. I see it in my nightmares, <laughs> the Hinkle House of Horrors. It's a terrible place. Beautiful, beautiful gym. Uh, I hate it. Um, <laughs> so it, it, it's one thing you got to give it credit for. It's one of the best environments in not only the conference, but in all of college basketball. Um, what I guess my question is, what is the best environment that you've personally been a part of as a broadcaster? Oh, man. Well, uh, just this year, because there's been so many good ones. Um, I'll keep it to Big East only, too, because I I do a lot of stuff in the Big Ten, and, and that makes it even more difficult because Purdue is up there. Michigan State is up there. Indiana, of course, is up there. My two, the two ones this year that stick out to me are Butler Nova. It was a whiteout. Butler was sold out. They were hungry for a win. They had come off of two 20 point losses and they kept it tight with Villanova the whole way. And the crowd was just really into it. And then the other one was Xavier, West Virginia, which, you know, Bob Huggins returning to Cincinnati for the first time in 17 years. You know, you wouldn't believe the amount of Bob Huggins signs in the crowd that <laughs> night and it was sold out standing room only there was ten and a half thousand there and i give i give xavier a lot of credit um that place is always rocking it's a tuesday night 9 p.m tip you bet the students are going to be there an hour before the game and it'll be sold out students at least um they do it right it's a it's definitely a basketball hungry school and there's their fans really get behind it 
I, that's what I've heard about Cintas. That's supposed to be crazy. I have yet to get there myself for a game, but that that's on the short list of biggest venues that I really I really have to get to. Uh, I've also I've heard Fiserv is fantastic. I don't know. Have you been up there for a game this year? Not this year. I'm going to Fiserv at the end of this month, and that is a really good environment too. It's just like mind blowing how nice it is. You know, it is a premier professional uh, arena. And the cool thing is that it's it turns into Marquette's true home floor. You know, Marquette colors, Marquette on the court and all that stuff. So it doesn't feel like you're in the Bucks stadium watching a Marquette game. And uh, they, that, that's a really good game day environment, too. That's yeah. That's another one that's on the list. I've been outside the arena, have not been in yet. That's one I'm I'm going to get up there. It's a fun one. I know you, you travel quite a bit for this. Talk about Cincinnati, Milwaukee, places like that. Are there any cities that you've been to through broadcasting that really stand out to you? Um, yeah. I mean, to be honest, in the Big East, there are no there are no bad cities. Uh. New York City is obviously the mecca, and you know I haven't been to to New York City pre uh, post COVID. But when I was covering the league for the Big East Digital Network, I had the opportunity four or five years in a row to go to Madison Square Garden for the men's tournament, and that's really hard to beat. Um, I did four years of minor league baseball all over the country when I was younger. And there are some cities that definitely stick out for the wrong reasons in, uh, <laughs> in my past. I mean, yeah, I don't want to I don't want to uh, be negative towards any particular city. But, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. There were some minor league towns I went to that it was the stadium and the hotel and nothing else. Yeah, I can I can. I have some some buddies of mine that have done that and. One that did uh, somewhere in Louisiana or Mississippi or something like that. Another one that was in Montana for a whole summer doing wow. baseball broadcasting. And I, I would imagine between the games, it's there's not a lot to do in some of those places. <laughs> no, no. But the thing about minor league baseball is you don't really do much in the season anyway besides call baseball games because <laughs> the season's long. There's a lot of games, and they usually take a while. Yeah. Now – Kind of flipping the script here a little bit, not too much. Um, I have this series on Twitter. I've been dying to ask you this question, by the way. <laughs> I have this series on Twitter where I, at the Finneran Pavilion, Pavilion, there we go, I get a new concession stand item of food and rank it one through ten every time I'm there. Um, you've obviously been to a lot of stadiums in the Big East, so we'll just do this here just to narrow it down a little bit. What's the best stadium? I know you get the media meals. So what's the best stadium food that you've had this year in the Big East so far? Asking the important questions on the road. Um, Wow. Okay. I mean, Hinkle serves Chick-fil-A. That's not exactly stadium food, but it is served at the stadium. Yeah. Uh, a lot of places actually, Tommy, have kind of done away with like the pregame meal. So I'm going to go back a couple of years. Pfizer Forum has an insane, or at least they used to. I don't know if they still do this. Insane brunch spread. I'm talking the whole nine. Bacon, eggs, pancakes, 
um, you know, muffins, fruit bar. I was, I, I went there for a, for a noon game. It might've been last year, actually, like a noon tip on new year's day. So they had the breakfast out. I was like, I was, I was going back for seconds. I was stashing <laughs> some away for, for post game. It was that good. What now I'm going to flip it on you. What is your number one ranked stadium item at the fin? Uh, at the fin, oh, I, I'd, I'd have to go back and and look at the rankings. But right now, believe it or not, I think it was the mango habanero chicken wings. Wow, at the that fin. sounds delightful. I saw the picture of them; and they looked mango really good. habanero chicken wings. I, yeah, your face is was mine when I walked past the concession <laughs> and, and saw it. But yeah, um, that sounds pretty high end for a stadium item. Oh yeah, they have a brisket sandwich, cheesesteaks, nachos, burgers, tacos. Wow. They See, that's the thing. You know, when, when we're getting set up for the game, it's not like I'm walking around the concourse. So I don't really get to see all the, uh, you know, assortment that these various <laughs> stadiums have to offer. But now you've kind of got my appetite churning a little bit. Next time you're at Nova, I'll bring you something down. I, I know you don't, I know you don't like being negative and, I'll go first. Mine's a Prudential Center. I hate the food there. It it is, <laughs> it is a yeah, Tommy and I did games, covered games there, and back to back weekends, and both of us just got all, mine. When I was there, it was like cold chicken tenders was all they had in the back. That's not good. Do you have cold any food horror stories? Food horror stories. Hmm. Well, not from my time, you know, calling games in the Big East, but. Definitely in minor league baseball. <laughs> Some of those oh, cities man. they'll get you. Oh man, yeah. I can't imagine that they have a, a huge budget for the food. For that. no, 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 no. Had to be great when a Not pro good. came down, though. Don't that pros usually buy the meals after the games? Well, it depends on the level, Tommy. When I first got started, I was in rookie ball. There was no major league baseball players coming down to rookie ball <laughs> in Johnson City, Tennessee. Beautiful place, by the way. It was in the Blue Ridge Mountains. It was awesome, but yeah, there was no major leaguers rehabbing down there. No, yeah, you're not gonna nothing there. I'll say my it's not a horror story, but um, at the the building formerly known as the Dunk in Providence, there I'm sure you're familiar. They usually have all kinds of soda and water and stuff for you to drink, especially like you're broadcasting. You need to have something that you can be mm -hmm. drinking throughout the game or whatever. They didn't have that in Providence. There was just one jug of a pink drink. Uh, we don't know exactly what it was. I think it was just some kind of watered-down Powerade with a bunch of ice in it. Pretty sure that's what it was. But if you wanted water, you had to go to the vending machine. I just used to bring my own water from, from home when I go to games there. But it was a running joke with me and some of the other guys there. It was just every game, it was the same pink container it was something filled up back there. It tasted fine. I didn't have a lot of flavor to it. I can't I had it basically every game for four years and I can't tell you what flavor it was. But that sounds like uh that sounds like somebody going to a college party and there's no drinks offered <laughs> exactly. but like the mysterious punch on the table. Yeah. Hey that hey the dunk gets jumping man. Maybe they got a little Maybe. jungle juice over there. Maybe that's that's what's uh, fueling it. Uh, they did have chicken and waffles for one game there, like, which was the like first. Incredible. It was the first time I ever had chicken and waffles, and it's now that is my go-to. If I'm getting brunch somewhere, chicken and waffles is my go-to brunch order. It just combines the two perfectly. 
That is a good meal. See, if that's the first time you ever had it, that's how I know you're from the East Coast. <laughs> because if you're in like Midwest, South, chicken and waffles is a staple. I didn't even hear about this till I was 18 years old. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I've learned so much about Midwest food staples on this podcast. Apparently, like cinnamon rolls and chili is a combo. Have you heard of this? We were no. told it's a Nebraska thing. What? Yeah. yeah, one of our one of our writers is from um, from Nebraska, and he was he was telling us that that's a thing where they do basically instead of having like a dinner roll on the side with your chili, you have a, a garlic or a cinnamon roll. I could see that actually, sweet and savory. That's, that's exactly how I. It's just like the uh, what do you call it? The cinnamon butter at Texas Roadhouse. Yeah. Oh my god. Right. I love cinnamon rolls, by the way, <laughs> and chili. So those are two things that I would put together. Now I'll try that if you, now. If you go to a Creighton game, you might have to uh, might have to, to see if they have that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, while, we're, while we're talking about broadcasting, I, one of the questions I had is somebody that used to broadcast in college. What's your routine? How's it work? How early do you get to the arena? How do you prep for it? How does that work? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, if I've seen the teams before, then the prep is is definitely condensed. Uh, especially when, you know, for example, there will be stretches during the season where I've got six games in eight days and they may all be in different locations. So the prep is condensed. But one thing I always utilize is the game notes that the that the uh, sports information director of each program puts out. And then I also find following the beat writers for every one of these programs to be incredibly helpful because they are they are the external expert on each of these teams. And I gather a lot of information uh, from, from, you know, beat writers or Twitter accounts, the athletic, I have a subscription to that. So I basically, when I'm going into a game, you know, uh, I'll give you an example. Last game I did was Seton Hall Butler um, got up to date on all the uh, articles that I hadn't read to that point leading up to that game for both teams. Then I did the game notes, watched some game film from each of their last uh, two games. And then that gives me a really good idea of the questions that I want to ask the coaches when we go to shoot around the day of the game. And that's where you get the good stuff. You know, the the stuff that you may not necessarily find in a post-game presser or a news clipping. And, um, you know, sometimes we get an opportunity to talk to players too, which is always – uh, a nice change of pace, just getting a player's perspective on things. Getting to the stadium, I'm usually there an hour and a half before unless the producer uh, has some extra elements that they want to show us, and then we'll get there two hours before. But for the most part, hour and a half before gives me plenty of opportunity to to walk around, talk with some more people, you know, make sure that there's – Make sure that there's no uh, surprises before we go on the air with regards to who's in the lineup and who's not, stuff like that. Yeah, I love that you pulled back the curtain there <clears throat> for us a little bit. I, that's so cool to kind of break down that wall, and at least for me. I, and speaking for Matt, of course, as well, it's, it's so cool to um, get that perspective. Now, is there something about broadcasting um, that most people don't know, or maybe you didn't know your first couple of times that kind of got you acclimated to it. Hmm. Um, yes, I probably use 
of the research that I do for each game. You know, I've got – I don't have a board on me, but um, for basketball because I, I usually toss them after the games. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I've got a board that's literally – it looks like a, a kid that – you know when you're in, in high school and they say it's an open note test but you're only allowed one sheet of 8 by 11 paper <laughs> – that's what my board looks like. I mean, it's like pretty much everything that could be pertinent or, you know, cool human interest stories, stats, whatever. I cram it on there. Tiny little type. It's seven point type. <laughs> uh, and I probably end up using 10% maybe uh, each game, particularly if the game's close. Because if the game's really close and the fans don't really care about all the research that we did, it's about the game. Right. You know, when, when, when there's a blowout, that's when you get, you get into that material a little bit more, but that did surprise me a little bit when I got to, got into TV more. Cause I started out in radio doing, doing minor league baseball. Yeah, that, that sounds about right based on some of my experience just doing the student broadcast too. I remember because I do all this research and I highlight things I thought were really important. Then you look back after the game, you're like, I completely forgot I wrote that down. That's just <laughs> never even thought to say it, even though it's right there because it just never comes up. Yeah. The one thing that uh, that I try to do now before every game is there will be maybe two or three themes for each team that I highlight on my board and I write theme next to it because I know that's something that I don't want to forget in the heat of the moment. And, and when I have an opportunity to glance down on my board, uh, you know, when there's a momentary stoppage or a basket's just been made and somebody's taking the ball out, it's an, it's a quick mental cue that like, Hey, you know, uh, so-and-so is out for Villanova again this week. That was a basket by a player that so-and-so would have guarded or, you know, something like that where you can kind of keep track of the main themes that need to be discussed. And then, you know, to your point, Matt, there's a lot of things that you look back after the game and you're like, man, I thought I was going to get that in and it would have been really good, but it just didn't fit. And you don't want to force it because if it doesn't make sense, if it's not relevant at the time during the broadcast, you don't want to, you know, force it in, force it in. Do you ever, are you on like Twitter and the breaks during the game at all, like looking for updates and information, or is it, do you come in with your information and you're just locked in for two hours? Uh, it depends. Um, you know, if I'm tracking, if it's a big day in the league, you know, if it's a Saturday and 10 teams are playing, then I'm, I'll be on Twitter um, just to kind of keep a pulse on some stuff that's happened, particularly if there's games on multiple networks. Like if there's a game on CBS Sports Network while we're on FS1, then I want to know what's happening in that game. But for the most part, you know, I don't get on my phone a whole lot. I'll get on it uh, maybe one media timeout a half and then at halftime. The nice thing, too, with, with texting is, you know, like last week at Butler um, – the Butler Sports Information Director, John Dedman, was texting uh, Kim Adams and I um, injury updates. You know, Chuck Harris went out with an injury, and he he texted us and said, Chuck Harris isn't coming back. You know, stuff like so, that. So when so when we hear those updates on air, sometimes it really is somebody texting you saying, hey, this is where we are right now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, dude, so much stuff you hear on air is stuff that people tell us in our ear or text us on the phone. Like, the stats people that sit next to us, sit next to me, to my left for every game, they are the unsung heroes of 
the broad the 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 broadcast really i mean and then of course all the people that are in the truck and the graphics folks um that's i guess back to tommy's question about the thing that surprised me about tv was just the amount of teamwork that it takes to make a broadcast whole you know the people at home really only hear us you know the broadcasters play-by-play analyst if, the, if there's a sideline reporter but so much more goes into it both going into the game and, and during the game too yeah that's awesome and i talked to a lot of these these players at villanova and especially in the preseason one of the big questions you know getting to know especially a lot of these young guys is who do you model your game after is there any broadcaster that you model your style after I pull from a lot, um, particularly when I was getting started and still figuring out what my style was, you know, my uh, broadcast identity, so to speak. Yeah. Being from St. Louis, Joe Buck is a, is a broadcast hero of mine, and uh, and he's been an incredible mentor to me. Um, Ian Eagle, I think, is, is one of the best. Jim Nance will be – on my Mount Rushmore forever. I mean, he was the voice of my childhood. Hey, heck, he's still the voice of the of the Final Four for now. <laughs> he, and he's then, the voice of the the Final Four, the Super Bowl, and the Masters. That's that's a holy trinity right there. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And then, um, you know, I uh, I really admire um, Brent Musburger. He when I was growing up, I was obsessed with college football. And I guess the same could be said for Vern Lundquist. You know, they they were the voices of the primetime games when I was growing up. And so I listened to them. Even before I knew I was going to be a broadcaster, they were part of my training, you know. Was there a point when you were a kid where you just knew this is what you wanted to do? <clears throat> um, when I was in high school, I actually wanted to be a sports center anchor. Um uh, Stuart Scott and Scott Van Pelt were were my guys. You know, I, I loved watching them. I had a football growing up that had all of Stuart Scott's sayings on it, like the cool is the other side of the pillow, booyah, all kinds of crazy stuff. And and then Scott Van Pelt obviously is like consummate professional. But when I was in high school, I, I thought I wanted to be a, a sports center anchor. And and even when I went to college, I actually didn't even think about play-by-play until after I graduated. So to answer your question, I mean, I guess it was in high school, but friends of mine will tell me stories now that I don't really, really remember. Like I would be mock announcing our wiffle ball games in my backyard, (laughs) you know, pretending like we were St. Louis Cardinals players, stuff like that. (laughs) It was, it was under the surface the whole time. Exactly. Yes, totally <laughs> in my subconscious. This is what I was meant to do. And, man, I'm, I'm blessed and grateful that I get to, to call games for a living and do it in a, in a league or leagues with the Big Ten included that are just so good. I mean, we were talking before we came on the air. Um, I don't know when you're going to post this, but the games that, you know, Providence at Xavier and then Villanova at Marquette. Those games on FS1 were top-notch games. 
it's you don't go a day without exciting basketball no, you in don't. this in either the Big East or the Big Ten yeah. this year. So it, it really is something. Um, I think we're through our list of questions here. So you're talking about broadcasts. What broadcasts do you have coming up? Where can people hear you? Yep. So I've got um, I've got Indiana Iowa women on February 9th. Caitlin Clark. Caitlin Clark against Mackenzie Holmes. Those two players, well, Mackenzie Holmes isn't right now, but she should be in the National Player of the Year conversation. And then I have uh, Marquette at Georgetown on the 11th. Those are my next two games. All right. Well, that's yep. where you can find them. And where's what's your Twitter? Where can people find you online? <laughs> at Matt Schumacher underscore on Instagram and Twitter. Yeah. Well, go go check them out. Thanks for coming on. This was awesome. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. And um, this is, I think this is coming out Friday. So if you guys are listening to this, check out our Thursday night episode. And we'll be live on Monday with some recaps of the weekend. So make sure to check that out. That's Tommy Godin and Matt Schumacher again. Thank you for joining us. I am Matt St. Jean. Thanks for listening. We'll be with you next.